This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore the idea of degrowth. I think one sort of consensus position is basically that it is a planned reduction of resource and energy use in an economy to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a way that also at the same time reduces inequality and facilitates the possibility for human flourishing. With me is Jason Hickel, an economic anthropologist, author, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in the United Kingdom. He is a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics and senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. He recently published a book entitled Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. The book is a must-read for anyone who wants to know how we can stop ecological breakdown and enable human flourishing. Jason Hickel, welcome to Fresh Ed. Yeah, thanks for having me. So congratulations on your new book. Um, And before we jump into it, I actually want to say I'm very sorry about the loss um, of David Graeber to the LSE community where you work. And I'm just wondering, you know, did David Graeber ever, ever influence you in any way in the creation of, of this new book? Yeah, I know the, the news about David was a real blow to all of us. And it came as such a shock. He was so young, only 59, and really was at the kind of the ascending period of his career in terms of his brilliance and his writing. And it was it was hard for all of us. And yes, his, I mean, his influ- what's extraordinary about David is, is he influenced so many people. <laughs> it, it'd be difficult to, to find an anthropologist, specifically an economic anthropologist, that was not in some way influenced by David's work. And that's definitely true for me. Uh, I first encountered his work when I was a postgraduate student at the University of Virginia. And I remember you know, sitting in my flat and reading um, fragments of an anarchist anthropology. And it was one of the most powerful pieces of text I think I'd read up until that point in my life. And really shaped the way that I thought of myself as an anthropologist and what I thought was important to be thinking about as an anthropologist. Mm. Um, and his work, you know, after that, uh, also profoundly shaped my perspectives, like, you know, the, his book Debt and also his work on bullshit jobs. Both of these, you know, you'll find echoes of this uh, of this work in Less is More, for sure. Um, mm. In fact, it's difficult, I think, for us to think about a, a post-growth or degrowth economy without some of the interventions he made when it comes to, you know, what money is and what work is for and so on. Mm. And this is not just true of me. I mean, lots of people writing in the degrowth space um, have been influenced by David's work. I mean, he was really a core intellectual for that movement even though he himself came to degrowth only later on, like only in the past couple of years, really, has David actively spoken about degrowth, even though he's been used in the degrowth literature for a long time, right? So, Oh, wow, how funny. Yeah, I was really, I, I was really excited about this. I mean, when he passed away, we were working on an article together about degrowth, one that I'm not sure I'll ever be able to finish without him, just because, you know, how can you write for David Graeber, you know? Oh, my gosh. But, uh, but yeah, and I was, so, I was so excited about the possibilities of his contributions to the degrowth literature. I thought, you know, the movement has found its real intellectual. <laughs> so mm, I'm so sorry. It's just, it's just awful to, to see what has happened and sort of all the ideas that will never get written in the future just is so tragic. So true. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm really sorry. I mean, he, I only met him once and, you know, not only was he a great intellectual, but he was an unbelievably warm person, you know. He was. He was so warm and generous. Yeah, I was a complete stranger and he just, you know, came up and chatted with me for quite some time and, you know, just absolutely... I was amazed because like you, I, I encountered him in graduate school and sort of then devoured everything he wrote because it was just so good. And it was very rare to find anyone else like him thinking in that sort of in that way. 
Uh, well, so, I, you know, it's interesting that he influenced you on this new book and that he was coming to the idea of degrowth, which is the sort of topic today. How would you even define, you know, degrowth? What is degrowth? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, you'll get lots of definitions from different parts of the scholarship, but I think one sort of consensus position is basically that it is a planned reduction of resource and energy use in an economy to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a way that also at the same time reduces inequality and facilitates the possibility for human flourishing, right? So um, so basically, I mean, if you know anything about Kate Rayworth's work about you know donut economics, the strategy for getting into the donut, right? Making sure that we meet human needs and provide good lives for all, but at the same time do so within planetary boundaries. Degrowth is the is sort of the strategy to accomplish this for high income nations that are, you know, that have high levels of excess use of resources and energy. So that's kind of what it is. I mean, there's also you know more philosophical de- you know definitions like degrowth actively rejects the ideology of growth uh, in the sense of growth is basically the ideology of capitalism, right? Capitalism is a system that uh, relies on continuous perpetual expansion, and it does so by extracting surplus from, uh, from humans and from the living world, which is quite often a destructive process that often has colonial characteristics, right? We can talk about that later. But, mm-hmm. but then what it does is it sells this process back to us as growth, which is just which just sounds so good, so natural, right? That we buy into it, even though otherwise we might not. So it's a very powerful framing that capitalism has at its disposal to convince us to sort of buy into a project which is really about commodification and elite accumulation, and not at all about human, you know, flourishing or thriving. Mm. But it gets framed that way with the language of growth, and we all buy into it on the left and right alike. I mean, you won't find a political party. It's very difficult to find a political party on either side of the aisle, as it were, that, uh, that has any kind of robust critique of growth. Yeah, in your book, you actually you bring up a really great story of Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader in the House of Representatives in America. Can you tell that story where she just basically can't even fathom the idea of, of degrowth? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, so in this case, in the case of, of Nancy Pelosi, it was actually a question about capitalism. There was a young man in the audience who you know, who asked her, you know, given the fact that so that, you know, the majorities of young people in America right now, you know, want an economic system other than capitalism, you know, people are actively yearning for a kind of post-capitalist possibility. Um, can the Democratic Party see its way towards a critique of capitalism? And Nancy Pelosi just kind of outright rejected the idea. And she said, I'm sorry to say we're capitalists, and that's just the way it is, right? And this is from <laughs> the leftist party in America. And look, I mean, the, de- the Democrats are pretty conservative compared to European progressive parties. At the same time, I mean, something quite similar is true even across Western Europe. Uh, You won't find a party on the left that has a critique of of this dimension of capitalism, right, of the growthist dimension of capitalism. And to me, this is important because, you know, it's, it's important to understand what capitalism actually is. Like, we often talk about it as though it's just a matter of, you know, markets and trade and businesses. But this isn't actually true, right? Markets and trade and businesses were obviously around for long before, you know, long before capitalism emerged. Capitalism is only about 500 years old. And what makes capitalism distinctive as an economic system in human history is that it is organized around perpetual expansion, right, which we call growth. And that's the dimension of capitalism that which becomes quite quickly destructive and exploitative and which we need to start questioning. So how does that happen, though? How, how did that ideology of growth sort of emerge, and how did it become destructive? Like, in what ways in that history do you see the destruction? 
Yeah, well, we can see it in the very beginning, you know, in the very early years of capitalism, actually. So in the 16th century, right, I mean, capitalism emerges effectively from the enclosure movements. Uh, so you have these elites in, in Europe, in Western Europe, who begin to enclose off the commons and kick peasants off the lands. And this is kind of this, you know, what Marx theorizes as a process of primitive or original accumulation. And then you have this piling up of wealth that then has to be invested for a constant return, right? At first, maybe that's easy, uh, but it moves very, very quickly. Like virtually all of you know Western Europe becomes enclosed. There's a massive refugee crisis as peasants are kicked off the land. They become the fodder, you know, the cheap labor effectively for the factories of the Industrial Revolution, right? And so you can see how growthist pressures begin to um, to colonize, if you will, uh, peasant lands in Europe. But it doesn't stop there because you need more to feed this beast, right? So what happens is you get the European expansion through the through colonialism, and whole swathes of the planet are brought into these circuits of extraction and commodification and production and consumption in the capitalist world system. And and we see, you know, I mean, like the slave trade was crucial to the rise of capitalism in Europe. Colonization of the Americas was crucial. I mean, look at these the main commodities of the Industrial Revolution, commodities like sugar and cotton, right? You know, they don't grow in Europe. Uh, they were grown by enslaved peoples um, on land appropriated from indigenous Americans. Uh, and that process was essential to, to capitalist growth in, um, in Europe. And so over and over again, from the, from the earliest years, what we see is that, is that the pressures for constant capital accumulation had these, um, you know, very destructive effects when it came to the appropriation that was required for that. And this to me is really curious because we, you know, we talk about capitalism as, as a system that creates value. But when you look at the history of capitalism, I mean, it's, it's largely a system that appropriates value from humans and from nature elsewhere, um, which it considers to be external to the system somehow. Uh, and that is, yeah, that's essential to the patterns that we see, and it continues to happen today. And so in what ways does it happen today? Well, for example, let's take emissions, you know, right? We've, we've exceeded the planetary boundary when it comes to global emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, we can see the consequences happening all around us. The fires burning in California and Oregon right now are a testament to this. I mean, the, the vast majority of these excess emissions have uh, been produced by, um, by a small number of you know, industrialized nations in the global north. What that process is effectively about is the appropriation of atmospheric commons, right? So if we all imagine that if we imagine the atmosphere is a shared and common resource uh, to which all should have some kind of equal safe access within the planetary boundary, I mean, industrial nations, through their process of um, industrial growth, have appropriated a vastly disproportionate share of that, stealing the uh, atmospheric commons of everybody else and also exceeding planetary boundaries themselves. So that's, you know, an example of how it happens today. But we see the same thing happening with resource extraction from the South, you know, which is rising at an exponential rate every year. Like this process is not slowing down. It keeps getting more expensive. And the reason for that, right, is that capital uh, has to grow um, not just at a linear rate, it has to grow exponentially. And the pressures for, ex for exponential growth might be quite small, you know, originally, but it very quickly piles up, right? So, you know, the global economy is worth 83 trillion US dollars or something like that right now. And it's got to grow by 3% next year. You know, 3% of that is roughly the size of the entire British economy. So somehow next year, the global economy has to grow has to, has to add another economy the size of Britain, which is, what, the fifth biggest economy on the planet, just to maintain the existing rate of growth. I mean, it's an extraordinarily um, violent process of expansion. And where is that going to be found, right? Um, and so this is why we see pressure on the forests of Indonesia, you know, pressure on the Amazon, pressure on the atmosphere, 
pressure on, I mean, just look at our own lives in, uh, you know, in everyday contexts, like bombarded by advertisements, uh, social media companies desperate for perpetual growth have to find ever more intensive ways to effectively frack for our attention, right? And on people's labor, right? That's right. Yes. I mean, all of these are, are effects of, of the growth are expressions of the growth imperative. Mm. It becomes quite destructive after a while. And I mean, what's so interesting in your book is that you don't only think about this in terms of capitalism, which is obviously, as you were just mentioning, a, a huge part here, but you actually go a bit further and you actually go all the way back to Plato to talk a little bit more about sort of a particular ontology that many humans have today. I mean, so what happened back then that sort of still impacts us today? Yeah, so it's interesting when you look at the history of, of capitalism in Europe, what you discover is that is the early capitalists faced a real conundrum, right? They had to somehow convince people that it was okay to exploit the living world, right? Mm. And that was a difficult proposition at the time, even in the 1500s, actually, in the 1400s, because at the time, like, most people subscribed to some idea that um, the world around them was alive, right? You know, animals and plants had agency and intention and ecosystems you know, uh, were alive and maybe even mountains and rivers. I mean, there's, it was almost like a kind of animistic spirit, you know, spirits that people believed in that inhabited the living world. And so the idea that, that it's fine for us to plunder it um, didn't go down well with people, especially the European peasantry, right? So somehow you had to, you had to destroy this belief. Hmm. And what we see is that, you know, a certain faction of European intellectuals began to reach back to, to some of Plato's ideas uh, about transcendentalism and posited this idea, you know, that there was uh, a strict division between a kind of transcendental spiritual realm and then a kind of earthly material realm, right? So this is what we know as dualism. And this was this was theorized most fully and ossified by Francis Bacon and René Descartes, the idea being that, that it's fine to basically exploit bodies and matter because they're not actually alive. They're basically just kind of these mechanistic, you know, machine-like, they're sort of cogs, and the only thing that has any kind of spirit whatsoever is the human mind, right? So mm. all of nature is just matter. Animals are just matter. Plants are just matter. None of them are thinking or have any agency or intention. It's only the human mind that has, that has some dimension of the spirit world of God, right? Which, of course, became central to the way that, that the church at the time you know, thought about the world. And this was a real revolution in uh, European philosophy at the time. And it, it, it won out, right? It won out with the backing of the church and it won out with the backing of of early capitalists at the time, because it enables it to become thinkable for uh, for the living world to be to be exploited and plundered. Right. So there was this monumental shift from thinking about the living world as kin, you know, with which you have to have some kind of reciprocal relationship, um, to thinking about the world as an object that you can that you can dominate and subdue and exploit. And that was a you know monumental trans you know transformation. Of course, that transformation has not been affected everywhere, and the you know the ethnographic record is full of examples of, of people around the world, specifically indigenous uh, communities, that refuse to see the world that way, that insist on seeing you know the world as kin and maintaining a relationship of reciprocity with it, which is fundamentally you know anti-capitalist in, in a very profound sense. So. So the argument I make in less is more is that is that ultimately, like, um, if we want to survive the 21st century, you know, with civilization intact, <laughs> then then it's going to have to entail not just a fundamentally different kind of economy, but also a fundamentally different kind of different way of imagining our relationship to the living world. 
one that is much more about balance and care and reciprocity than than it presently is. Um, and that's interesting to me because that actually, you know, some of these indigenous philosophies that I that I explore in Less Is More resonate in interesting ways with ecological economics. Uh, if you look at like the principle of the steady state in ecological economics, the idea is that you should never extract more from ecosystems than they can replenish. Um, on an annual basis, and you should never waste more than ecosystems can safely absorb, right? And so the idea is that you maintain this balance with uh, with the ecosystems that that you live with, uh, and this is like you know a formal principle articulated in ecological economics. But you find the same thing in uh, in indigenous thought about um, economies and exchange. It's remarkable, actually. So, and of course, it's more elaborated even than in the way that some of these communities think about it. Yeah, right. So, so these sort of ecological economics. It, they're sort of just catching up to a lot of this indigenous knowledge that has been around for thousands of years. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's not, of course, to, uh, to you know to reify indigenous knowledge. Like it, you know, we we encounter it in all sorts of different manifestations. Uh, people who live close to the land have uh, a variety of different ways of interacting in meaningful ways with the living world they depend on, um, and so it's, it's certainly not just one way. And of course, it changes. But there is, it's a rich space to think with, and we do have a lot to learn. And so, I mean, what, what else, you know, what would some of these more practical approaches to degrowth actually look like in practice? I mean, there's that ontological split trying to not see human and nature as, as distinct, but more interconnected, as you said. But, you know, what, what about on a, you know, maybe a, a non-ontological level, on a more material level, what might it actually look like? Yeah, so um, so the first thing to recognize is that high-income nations do not need more GDP growth to achieve their social goals, right? And this is mm. this is like a, maybe a strange one for some people to swallow because we've been told, like we're told over and over again at every possible opportunity that GDP is effectively a proxy for human progress and economic success and human well-being, et cetera. And if we want to accomplish anything, I mean, be it a renewable energy transition or be it, you know, an end to poverty or be it you know, full employments, then the only way to do that is with more GDP growth, right? Yeah. But what's interesting is that, you know, the data tells a completely different story. And this is remarkable, right? Take the USA, for example. The US has um, GDP per capita of $60,000, right? And compare that with Portugal. Portugal has a GDP per capita of 60% less, so quite a lot less. And yet, you know, Portugal has a much longer life expectancy and better social indicators virtually across the board. How is that possible that Portugal could outperform the USA on, you know, in every way that matters with vastly less GDP? How is it possible? Well, <laughs> it's because they distribute income more fairly and they invest in robust universal public goods, right? And over and over again, this is basically, you know, demonstrated to be the, the keys to, uh, to the good life, the keys to, you know, to the possibility of flourishing lives for all. It shouldn't be surprising, really. Like, um, it's, you know, it's not that we don't have enough GDP, right? It's simply that, you know, the vast, you know, the vast majority of it is captured at the top, right. where it doesn't actually contribute to human well-being whatsoever. Right. So, mm. I mean, think about this. This always blows my mind. Right. So the, the richest 5% of people in the world capture nearly one half of all new income from global GDP growth every year. Wow. Right. This is crazy. So if you think about it, 
Like that means that that half of all the labor that we render and all the emissions that we emit and all the resources that we extract and produce and ship around the world, that is all like half of that is done to make rich people richer. That's extraordinary. So right. one of the key, you know, one of the core tenets of degrowth is that we, you know, is that high income nations don't need growth. They just need a fair distribution of, of income. And if you do that, then you can accomplish your social goals right now without, you know, needing a single iota of additional GDP to do it. I mean, the way that politicians have long seen GDP, GDP growth rather, is as a way to avoid dealing with class conflicts, right? The idea is that mm. uh, you can keep the elite accumulating um, so long as some of it trickles down and improves the lives of the poor, right? Because that's easier to do than to distribute income more fairly in the first place, right? Yeah. And so growth becomes this way that our politicians basically opt out of you know, the difficult conflicts of class antagonism. And so we, we have to confront that fact. In a you know, in an era of ecological breakdown, this is not a feasible option anymore. So that's the first thing is simply to recognize that we can flourish without growth. But the next thing is that we have to recognize that look, high income nations are overwhelmingly responsible for excess resource use and emissions, which is driving climate breakdown and driving pressure on all sorts of other planetary boundaries, right? Soil depletion, deforestation you know, species extinction rates, I mean, you name it. So what we have to do is we have to dramatically scale down uh, resource and energy use in high income nations to bring these economies back into line with, you know, back into balance with the living world. So, and what does that look like? Like, the first thing to recognize is that a huge chunk of the resources and energy that we use has nothing at all to do with human needs. <laughs> it's organized almost explicit, you know, almost entirely around profit, right? So think about planned obsolescence, for example. The fact that our devices break down after a couple of years and have to be replaced, or even our appliances, like the lifespan of appliances like washing machines and dishwashers and so on, has been shrinking. Mm. And we know that it's it's physically, technologically possible to produce for cheap to produce these products to last many times longer than they presently do. But of course, that would mean, you know, stagnation in uh, the companies that produce them, right? So there's an incentive, you know, under capitalism to, you know, enhance turnover by getting products, you know, by, by shortening product lifespan. So, mm. um, you know, but you can regulate it, you can regulate against that. Uh, you can introduce rights to repair, you can ban the practice of planned obsolescence, you can um, introduce mandatory extended uh, warranties, you can have technology take back initiatives, you can cut advertising expenditures. We know that advertising is a major driver of, of excess resource consumption. And we know that cutting it not only um, reduces resource consumption, but also at the same time improves people's happiness. So that's, you know, I mean, there are a few things in the world that are win-win, but that is definitely one of them. <laughs> Although not for companies that rely on advertising. Right, for boosting sales. That's right, exactly. Now, of course, the first thing people will ask is like, look, okay, fine. So... Um, maybe we even have a conversation about scaling down particularly destructive industries. Like, let's let's stop assuming that all industries need to grow all the time, which is the present dominant assumption, mm. and agree that let's grow some of the industries that we know we need, say renewable energy, you know, public health, um, and let's degrow the ones that are clearly bad. Right. So SUV production, private jet production you know, McMansion production, <laughs> right, whatever it might be. But then, of course, you face a problem, which is that as these industries uh, begin to scale down, then you have an unemployment problem, right? Mm. Uh, so what do you do about that? And this is, of course, one of the major reasons that economists and politicians insist on more growth is because you need growth to create jobs, right? Yeah. But this 
is a lie, right? In fact, we can create jobs simply by shortening the working week. So as you get rid of excess, you know, production in the economy that's unnecessary, um, right, and just destructive, then then you can liberate people from unnecessary labor by shortening the working week. Um, degrowth scholars also call for um, for something like a, a public job guarantee recognizing that there's lots of work that we do need to do that the private sector generally doesn't want to do, right? Things like regenerate ecosystems, you know, care work, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's, there's quite a lot of labor that does need to be done that, that is important to human flourishing. Mm, I think Stephanie Kelton calls the guaranteed job offer some sort of an economic stabilizer. That's right. Yes, it has all sorts of important impacts, including stabilizing inflation, right? Mm. And as, as Stephanie Kelton points out, it can be funded you know, very, very easily you know, with, uh, with the application of modern monetary theory. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so I mean, here you see that MMT actually fits in really nicely with degrowth. Hmm. Hmm. So, but another key, another key point that degrowth scholars make is this, and this also actually um, aligns with Kelton's work, is that, is that you decommodify public goods. So you ensure that people have access to robust, high-quality, uh, universal public services, uh, not just healthcare and education, but, you know, affordable housing, public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And doing so has a magical effect, right? Basically what it means is that suddenly people don't need to keep pursuing ever higher incomes just to live good lives, right? They can access the goods they need to flourish without needing to, you know, to work and earn um, ever more each year, right? So this takes extraordinary amount of pressure out of the growth imperative, right? There's a lot less pressure in the economy for competitive productivity, and for competitive consumption when you have access to universal basic goods. And so this is one of the things that degrowth calls for is, right? Like, like if growthism is about commodification and enclosure, which it has been for the whole history of capitalism, then how do you build a, de- a degrowth economy? By de-enclosing the commons and decommodifying, you know, key parts of our system. Mm. So, and that's, you know, that's really, I think it's quite powerful. It is, it's really powerful. And so that would be in high income countries. What about low and middle income countries where, you know, the the standard of livings, the quality of life might not be as good there economically, they're not as wealthy and rich as some of these high income countries. So, you know, what would degrowth look like in low and middle income countries? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so the key thing is that degrowth scholarship does not call for degrowth in lower or middle income countries. Degrowth is only for situations basically where countries are in excess of planetary boundaries, right? Mm. So, and in low in low income countries, obviously, like in many cases, they need to use more resources and energy just to meet human needs. Now, the difference here is that we would still want to question growthism, as in the goal here uh, should not be to grow the GDP and hope that that solves, you know, social problems like poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The goal should be to target those objectives directly, and if that entails some growth, then so be it. Right. If that entails or requires some growth, then so be it. That's fine. Yeah. But here's and this brings me to a really important point, which is that you know degrowth is also about decolonizing the imaginary of development. So beginning in the 1980s, then growthism, as in the pursuit of growth for its own sake, was pushed across the global south by the World Bank and the IMF through structural adjustment programs. Right. And the idea was like, look, okay, so global south governments, you know, in the wake of colonialism, had been using you know, social policy, like progressive social policy to improve people's lives and 
and ensure people have access to the goods they needed to live well and to reduce inequality and improve wages, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm. And then suddenly they were made to stop doing all those things and instead reorganize their economies around the interest of capital growth. Uh, and this had devastating effects for the livelihoods of ordinary people um, during the structural adjustment period. Um, so in the South, the, the idea of degrowth aligns with, the, uh, with calls for what uh, activists and scholars in the South call post-development which is, you know, let's stop organizing our economies around the imperatives of Western capital accumulation and instead, you know, reorganize them around, around human need and, uh, and ecological stability. Yeah, so, I mean, there's kind of a different application of degrowth in the North versus the South, but they draw on very similar principles. Right, and they both sort of have to happen together if this vision of degrowth can actually, you know, take hold. And I guess, you know, thinking about the coronavirus pandemic, so many economies and societies shut down for a few weeks, a few months, many are still sort of trying to, quote unquote, get back to normal. And there was many people that were sort of excited that this was this opportunity to rethink economies, rethink societies. What about you? I mean, are you hopeful? Do you see what's happening in the world today and say, uh, you know, we now can can sort of organize in a way that can actually embrace some of these ideas of degrowth? Do you see that happening or are you a bit maybe perhaps more pessimistic? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When um, when the COVID crisis first hit, then I was very worried. I was like, look, this is, this is going to be bad for degrowth because immediately everyone's attention is going to turn to, oh, we're in a recession and the only way to get out of a recession is to... Um, is to focus everything on growth, right? Just throw everything we have at stimulating growth. Mm. You know, I thought there would be limited space for a conversation about challenging that perspective. Mm. But what I've actually encountered is quite the opposite. I've, like in the wake of the crisis, I, I feel that people are surprisingly open to imagining a different kind of economy. I think that during the crisis, it became clear to people that, you know, particularly in the US and the UK, our economy is organized primarily around growth and elite accumulation. And things like human welfare are really quite secondary, right? Like that's an afterthought, mm. <laughs> um, if a thought at all. And I think that people really want quite the opposite. They want, they want an economy that's organized around human well-being, public health, right, care, and importantly, ecological stability. You know, because we realize that the COVID crisis was triggered by human incursions into the living world because of growth as pressures. And I think that people are eager for something else, for, for something different. Um, so there is a space right now, I think, for this conversation to happen. Um, mm, I sure hope so. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that we can draw on degrowth principles to make an argument for a recovery without growth. And this is perhaps a bit counterintuitive because, you know, we think of a recession as, you know, recession is by definition too little GDP. And to get out of it, you have to grow the GDP. But our problem right now, really, if, you know, from a, from the perspective of degrowth scholarship, our problem right now is, is not that there's too little GDP. It's that people don't have access to good livelihoods. That's the crisis. But, you know, we know we can solve that crisis directly uh, right now without needing to, you know, throw everything at growing the economy and hope that somehow solves the problem for us, which it virtually never does. So I think we're going to be smarter about the recovery this time, and I hope that becomes a part of the conversation. Well, I, I hope so too. Jason Hickel, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure of talking, and congratulations again on your book. Yeah, thanks very much. Jason Hickel is a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics, and a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. His new book is entitled Less is More. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, 
which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.